Okay, so um, welcome to the Wolfson Climate Series. Uh, uh, we're delighted to have you here and our four prestigious speakers who will talk uh, from this week and for the, the following three weeks. Um, thank you for making the trek out here. It's been rather a tempestuous day, but I'm pleased to see the, the sun is, is out again. So, so, so it's been great that you could make the trek up to Wolfson. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Professor John Broom for the first of our lectures. Uh, he's the White Professor in uh, Moral Philosophy at Corpus Christi College. Um, and he has a whole raft of awards and honours, um, including being a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, a Fellow of the British Academy, and a foreign member of the Royal Swedish Academ Academy of Sciences. Um, he was telling me that he's been recently invited to be a lead author for the IPCC uh, Fifth Assessment uh, Working Group 3 and is really sort of tackling this really important question in, in a way accepting that the science has, has performed its function to persuade, we hope, uh, the population of climate change. And what John hopes to tackle is really this question of what should we do next? Um, he's written a series of, of, of really interesting books, including uh, those entitled Weighing Goods, Weighing Lives, Counting the Cost of Global Warming. And, uh, and he has a forthcoming book, um, which is going to be called Climate Matters, uh, published by Norton and out in July in the US and probably in the UK around September. So I'm sure that will make for great reading and I'm sure he will wet, his ap wet our appetite uh, with his lecture today entitled The Public and Private Ethics of Climate Change. So I'll hand over to John and thank him for offering us this lecture. Well, thank you, Ros. Uh, thank you for the generous introduction and especially for plugging the book. I appreciate that. Uh, and thank you for coming. I'm very grateful to Wolfson for this uh, invitation. It's a great honor to have a chance to talk to you. I'm going to talk about morality. Um, as individuals, we are subject to various uh, moral duties. For instance, um, we have a duty to be kind to strangers, to keep our promises, to look after our parents when they're old, and so on. And governments also have moral duties. Uh, a government should not imprison innocent people, it should protect refugees, it should support the destitute, and so on, and those are moral duties uh, owned by the government. The moral duties of governments are what I'm going to call public morality. And they generate derivative moral duties on individuals as citizens, civic duties, you could call them. We, are, we all have moral duties to do what we can to get our governments to behave rightly, and those are civic duties. But I'm not going to count civic duties as part of private morality. What I count as private morality is the morality of our private life as opposed to our civic life. Climate change creates moral duties both on governments and public duties and on individuals, private duties. And I'm just going to talk about some of those uh, and try to persuade you that there really are some that you might not have recognized so far. So moral duties fall into two broad classes. Uh, duties of justice on the one hand 
and duties of goodness uh, on the other. Um, more technically, philosophers tend to call those duties of beneficence. There may be other classes of moral duties too, but those are the two that I'm going to talk about. I'm not ruling out others, but those are the ones I'm going to concentrate on. The duty of goodness is the duty to promote uh, good in the world. And I'm going to take it for granted that governments at least do bear this duty. They have at least a duty to promote the good of their own uh, citizens. For instance, they should manage their country's economic infrastructure or their banking regulations with that aim in mind of promoting the good of, of, the, of their, their people. I actually, as it happens, also think that individuals bear a, a duty of goodness, but you will see that that claim is not essential to the argument that I'm going uh, to make. It is essential that governments have that duty. But improving the world is not our only moral duty, or even government's only moral duties. When something you could do would improve the world, it doesn't follow that you ought to do it. In fact, you may not even be permitted uh, to do it. A famous example is the surgeon, a transplant surgeon who has five patients in her hospital. One of them needs a new heart, one needs a new lung, one needs a new kidney, one needs a new liver, and so on. And what she does about it is take an innocent vis visitor to the hospital, kill the visitor, take out her various organs, and distribute them among the five patients, thereby saving five lives at the expense of one. Well, that's promoting good in the world. Uh, five people are saved uh, at the cost of one life, but plainly, she shouldn't do it. There must be some duty of morality that says she should not do this thing, even though it would promote uh, the goodness uh, of the world. So there's got to be some other source of moral duties and a source that can oppose acting for the greater good. At least a part of that is the duty not to harm people. Now, that's not just a duty to take account of the harm you do when you're judging the goodness of the results of what you do. Obviously, for that, you need to look at the good things and also the harm you do when you act, and the harm has to be weighed uh, against the good. But the duty not to harm goes, has to go beyond that, because if it didn't, that surgeon would be acting rightly. There's some harm, namely the death of one person, but there are five goods to balance that, and she would be acting rightly, even taking account of the harm that she does if she was to kill that person. So the duty not to harm has to go further than that. In fact, it's a duty not to harm even when harming has the result of promoting the greater good uh, overall. There has to be some duty of that sort in order to explain that fact about the surgeon. But it's also true, on the other hand, that the duty not to harm people is not unlimited. There are many occasions where it actually is morally permissible for you to uh, harm people. For instance, you can harm somebody in self-defense. Uh, that's, uh, that's obvious. So there is a duty not to harm, but it is limited. And I'm very sorry to say that I can't tell you exactly where the limits uh, are. There are harms which are not permissible, and there are harms that are permissible, and the boundary between them I can't delimit. But I'm, in a moment, going to describe 
one that's on the wrong side of the boundary and try and give you enough evidence at that point to convince you that it really is on the wrong side of the boundary. It's a harm that you should not do. And I take that, that harm, of the duty not to do that harm, to be a duty of justice. One reason for treating it as a duty of justice is that it has one characteristic that is um, typical of, uh, and in fact an essential characteristic of uh, justice. The duty not to harm is a duty that's owed to a particular person or to particular people. If you breach a duty of justice, there is always somebody to whom you're doing an injustice. There's somebody who, to whom this duty of justice was owed, and if you breach it, you are breaching a duty owed to that person. To express that fact, we often say that the person has a right to your performing uh, the duty. When you have a duty of justice to do something or other, that means there is somebody to whom you owe it to do it, and that person has a right to your doing it. And in particular, people have a right not to be harmed, and a right not to be harmed even for the sake of the greater overall good. That's a feature of this uh, duty not to harm, and that's what makes it a duty of justice. By contrast, duties of goodness are not owed to particular people. Take an example. Suppose you quite plausibly, do have a duty to promote people's good by, for example, um, giving them money through uh, a charity. Maybe we do have a duty to do that. But most of us do not think that that's a duty that's owed to the particular people who would receive the money, that they have a right to our money. And we don't think that we would do them an injustice if we don't do it. We should do it, but we don't owe that as a duty to uh, anybody. So the duty of goodness is not a duty of justice and it's not owed to particular people. So there is this distinction then among different sorts of duty. And I'm now going to apply this distinction to the morality of climate change. And my first point is that the relative importance of justice on the one hand and goodness on the other hand differs between private morality and public morality. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say next because it is a bit unexpected, especially if you're a political philosopher. The duty of justice is relatively more important for private morality and the duty of goodness is relatively more important for public morality. Moral philosophers tend to think of justice as primarily a public duty. But the case I'm going to make is that for climate change, it's primarily a private duty. In fact, I'm going to argue that the private morality of climate change derives entirely from a duty of justice, whereas public morality is also owned at, aimed at uh, goodness. So why do I say that? Well, I've got two reasons, actually. Um, the first... Um, is known to philosophers as the non-identity problem. And philosophers will recognize that code as soon as I mention it. But if you're not a philosopher, um, you will find it rather uh, technical. 
And for that reason, I decided not to dwell on this. I shall mention it briefly and get on to the second reason, which I hope is more uh, easily recognized by non-philosophers. So this non-identity problem, what is it? It was made prominent by my uh, colleague at Oxford, uh, Derek Parfit. Think about the effects of serious action on the part of a government to slow down climate change. That action will have significant effect, major effects, on people's lives. It will affect how people travel about, it will affect who meets whom, it will affect which partners people team up with, which partners they have babies with, and it will affect what times they have babies. And the result of that is that action to slow climate change, significant action, will have the effect of completely changing the identities of the people who will be living in 150 years or so, because it would have profound effects on the way that people live their, their lives. But now remember that duties of justice are duties owed to particular people who have a right to their performance. Now, suppose a government doesn't bother to do much about climate change, so in 150 years, there are people um, who are living lives that are less good than the lives of people at that time could be. We couldn't say that the government's negligence in not doing anything about it infringes of the rights of those people who live in 150 years because had the government done something about it, those people would not even have existed at all. There would have been another lot of people existing in their place. So the government's duty to slow climate change cannot be a duty owed to the people who um, live with the effects of it. It cannot be owed to those future people. That doesn't mean, of course, that it doesn't have a serious duty to do something about climate change, but that is not a duty of justice. The non-identity effect shows it cannot be owed to those future people. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that so far as responding to climate change is concerned, the duty of goodness demands very little of you as an individual. It requires you to reduce your emissions of greenhouse gas to some extent, but only insofar as you can do it really with very little cost to yourself. You should probably switch off the light when you leave the, the room. You should probably eat a bit less meat uh, and, and so on. But only minor um, changes are needed so far as the duty of goodness is concerned. So I next need to explain why the duty of goodness is so nugatory on individuals. To do that, I need to give you some idea of the quantity of harm that a person's emissions of greenhouse uh, gas do. This is a quantitative argument, so I've got to say something about numbers now. I'm going to use figures um, that were shown me by uh, Dave Frame, who was in Oxford until a, a year or so ago, a physicist. And I must emphasize that these are not meant to be hard numbers. These are just meant to be a sketch to give you the roughest idea of the sort of harm that we do by emission, our emissions, nothing more than that. Something about an order of magnitude, nothing much more than that. So Frame calculates that the average person from a rich country, if she was born in 1950, will emit during her life around about 800 tonnes of carbon dioxide. And that's going to warm the atmosphere by about one-half of one billionth of a degree. So your lifetime emissions will warm the atmosphere by something in the region of one-half of a billionth of a degree. 
How much harm does that do? Well, I'm going to talk about a major component of that harm, which is the, um, the, the killing uh, it does people. A major part of the harm of climate change is that it's going to shorten people's lives. It's going to kill people by various means, by promoting uh, epidemics, by causing more natural disasters, um, even by causing more heat waves, which kill a lot of people. The World Health Organization has published some predictions about this, and on that basis, we can estimate, on, on the basis of its predictions, which are very indefinite, of course, we can estimate that that 800 tons you emit will shorten people's lives in total by some months, maybe something like half a year or something along those lines. In fact, each, each year of your emissions as a member of a, an average person in a rich country will shorten people's lives in total by a day or two, something like that. Of course, none of us is going to shorten any particular person's life by six months or even uh, a, a day or two, but in total, those are the, the harms that we do, and those are serious harms. None of us would want to be responsible for shortening a life by uh, six months. That's really a lot of loss of life. Read conversely, this shows you that, that we do a lot of harm, but conversely, that you can do a lot of good by stopping your emissions, by not or reducing your emissions. That's worth knowing because a lot of people, I think, feel despair in the face of climate change because they think the problem is so enormous that nothing they can do as individuals really will do any good. But that's actually not correct. As an individual, by reducing your emissions, even if you start now and do it every year, you will extend people's lives in totals by some amount, a month or two, maybe. And that's a pretty significant good uh, that you can do. But the main point I want to make is not that it's a significant good, but that it's not actually a large good in comparative uh, terms. Um, suppose you were to reduce your emissions to zero in the cheapest possible way, and the cheapest possible way is by offsetting them. I'll be talking about offsetting uh, in a moment. It'll cost you a few hundred pounds a year uh, to do that. So a few hundred pounds would be the cost of reducing your emissions to zero. Now, if you had a few hundred pounds and you wanted to spend them on doing good, you would do a lot more good to use them in a different way you would do much more good to send them to a charity that cures tuberculosis because for a few hundred pounds, you can actually save a person's life and that person will go on living for many years. So if you use that, that resource on reducing your emissions, you'll extend lives by a few days or a month maybe. No, a few days per year. If you um, spend it on curing tuberculosis, you will save 40 years of a person's life. So you can do much more with your resources. You, can, you have much better ways of using your resources than to um, uh, spend them on reducing your emissions. Of course, when your emissions do other harms besides killing people, that's true. But the other harms you do are not big enough in order to close that very large uh, gap. So in order to improve the world as much as you can, you should carry on emitting your, your greenhouse gas, and you should send the money you save by doing that, by not offsetting it, to a tuberculosis charity, which will use it to save many more lives. And that's why I said that the duty of goodness does not require you to reduce your emissions significantly. Why doesn't that argument apply to governments? 
Well, only because governments have control over much more resources than most individuals do, if, I, if you're not Bill Gates. Um, like individuals, governments too, at the moment, have more effective ways of using their resources to do good than reducing climate change. They could do much more good by curing tuberculosis and eradicating malaria, providing clean water for people all over the world and so on with the, with the resources that they've got. But even when they've used their resources to do all those things, then they could still improve the world further by using the power that they've got to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So a government's duty of goodness it requires it to treat malaria, it provide, requires it to provide clean water, and so on, and to reduce climate change. But that's not so for you, because by the time you'd used up all your resources in these more effective ways, curing malaria and treating tuberculosis, you wouldn't have anything left. Your, your resources would be exhausted long before it became a good thing to reduce uh, climate change. So... The duty of goodness does not require you to uh, control your emissions. So that means that the private morality of climate change does not arise from the duty of goodness. It arises instead from a duty of justice. So now I want to ask, what does the duty of justice require of individuals? The duty I'm concerned with is the duty not to do harm. And I've already said that each person's emissions of greenhouse gas do harm. And I've even given you an estimate of the rough, a rough estimate of the, of the amount of harm uh, that they do. They shorten people's lives. Now, earlier I said that not all the harms you do are necessarily unjust, but the next thing I'm going to do is argue that the uh, harm you do by your emissions of greenhouse gas actually is unjust. I can't do that conclusively because I told you I don't know exactly where to draw the line between harms that are unjust and harms that are that are just, but I'm going to mention six characteristics of the harm done by greenhouse gas emissions, and I hope that by the time I've reached the end of the list, it will be pretty clear to you that the harm done by greenhouse gas emissions is an unjust one. And besides those six points, there are some others that are so obvious that I haven't included them on the list. For example, um, the harm you do to people is not a merited punishment for um, some, uh, some crime that they've committed. It's not um, done with the permission of the people who are harmed and so on. So here are, are six are slightly less obvious characteristics. First, the harm we do by our emissions is something we do rather than the result of something that we omit to do. A lot of us make a moral distinction between the results of what we do and the results of what we allow to happen by uh, our emissions. We, th we think that doing harm is worse than failing to prevent harm. If you fail to give money to a charity that relieves poverty, you fail to prevent the harm of uh, poverty, but many of us don't think that that failure is an injustice. But emitting greenhouse gas is not like that. In living our lives, we act in ways that cause greenhouse gas to be emitted. We cause carbon dioxide to spew from our chimneys and from our car's exhaust pipes. And those are consequences of things we do rather than things we omit to do. So that's the first characteristic of our emissions. 
The second is that the harm we do is not accidental. Indeed, not only that, but we do it knowingly. There are very few people in the developed world these days who don't understand about the greenhouse effect. So our emissions, the calm of our emissions is not an accident. Had it been accidental, well, that wouldn't have been unjust, but it is an accidental. Third characteristic, we don't compensate the victims of our harm. Uh, an injustice can sometimes be cancelled out by compensation. If you hurt somebody but you pay them compensation, that's sometimes enough to cancel it. But our, we do not cancel our emissions in that way. We do not compensate the people who are harmed. Fifth point, we mostly cause these harms for the sake of our own benefit. We're deriving benefits from driving about in our cars and spewing out exhaust. There are some exceptions. Some people are exceptionally altruistic and they act for the sake of others. And um, their aim may be to save money by not cutting their emissions and using the money to benefit mankind. I'm not addressing people like that. If you're one of those, I'm not actually talking to you. I'm addressing the less altruistic majority, people like me. Um, and uh, I said that Justice normally prohibits you from harming other people even in order to make the world better. Well, it much more strongly prohibits you from harming other people for the sake of your own good, even if your own good is greater than the harm you do. So that's the fourth point. Fifth point, these are not reciprocated harms. There are some environmental harms that are reciprocal. So, for example, if you um, drive in a congested city your presence on the street slows down other people, so you're harming them, but their presence on the street slows you down, so this harm is reciprocated. And because of that, we don't think you're committing an injustice to them by driving uh, on the streets. But the harm of greenhouse gas is not like that. The transaction of greenhouse gas is basically the, rich present, the present rich um, causing harms to the present poor and to future uh, people, and those are not reciprocated. The present poor have, don't, are not doing um, reciprocal harm to us. Um, and I am referring to the emissions of the present rich. That is not reciprocated. Sixth characteristic of greenhouse gas is that we could easily reduce uh, our emissions. And I'm going to explain soon that this is actually a, a easier than you might think. Possibly you might be excused for causing harm to other people if it would have been very hard to avoid it, but emitting greenhouse gas is not in that category. You can easily avoid the harm. So I conclude from all these considerations that our emissions of greenhouse gas are an injustice. And it follows that each of us is under a duty of justice not to cause the emissions of greenhouse gas, at least without compensating people uh, who are harmed as a result. So if you don't compensate people, your carbon footprint ought to be zero. Now, that's strong advice. And it's also sort of embarrassing from the point of view of a moral philosopher because, um, as I was explaining to Roz, we, in moral philosophy, in philosophy in general, we deal in generalities. You know? We don't go around preaching to people and giving them specific moral instruction. That's for somebody else. Um, but here I am uh, doing that, and, and I find I can't avoid doing, drawing the conclusion that I've drawn. It seems to me an inevitable conclusion when you start thinking about the harm done by greenhouse gas emissions. So I'll say it again, none of us should, um, we should all have zero carbon footprints. 
Now, fortunately, that's, although it's strong advice, it's not quite as onerous to fulfill as, uh, as you might think. So let me talk about how you might fulfill that uh, advice. The first way you might try to do it is by compensating the people that you harm. But I don't recommend that means because it'll fail. The people that you harm are people all over the world and people who are going to be living far in the future. And there isn't any way you can get compensation to all of those people in particular. And remember that this is a duty of justice and it's owed to particular people. So that's what you would need to do. Furthermore, you wouldn't have any idea how much compensation you owe because nobody is very clear how much harm emissions of greenhouse gas is doing. We know they're doing harm but the, very, the estimates of how much vary enormously by a full order of magnitude, maybe even two full orders of magnitude. So you have no idea how much compensation you ought to be doing. <coughs> so I don't recommend that means. You'll do better not to make the emissions in the first place, and then no compensation would be required. And that is possible. Now, it's true that you couldn't live in a way that doesn't cause emissions, because just about anything that you buy has been made by some process that involved using fossil fuels, and so it did uh, cause emissions. You can reduce your emissions in the ways we all know about, by insulating your house, eating less meat, switching off lights, uh, uh, and so on. Um, and many of those you can take at little or no cost, and you should do those. But actually, your most effective way of reducing your emissions is to offset the remainder of your emissions, those ones that you haven't managed to reduce by the means that I just Described, and I'm going to explain how offsetting works in a moment. Now, please realize that I'm not telling you that offsetting is a way to solve the problem of climate change. It obviously isn't. I've already said that um, reducing your emissions of greenhouse gas is not an effective way to wait for you to make the world a better place. You've got more effective ways of making the world a better place. All I'm saying is that it's unjust for you to emit greenhouse gas, which will cause other people. And it's your duty of justice that says you must do this. You must stop emitting greenhouse gas. It's to avoid committing an injustice to other people. How do you do it? Well, offsetting, I recommend. So what, how does that work? Well, offsetting your emissions means ensuring that for every unit of greenhouse gas that you put into the atmosphere, um, you also cause a unit of greenhouse gas to be subtracted from it. So that if you offset your emissions, on balance, you add nothing to the atmosphere. It's true that offsetting doesn't take away the very molecules that you emit, but the climate doesn't care about which molecules are, are, are warming it. If you offset your emissions, you make sure that your presence in the world causes no addition to the greenhouse gas that's in the atmosphere. You therefore do not contribute to warming the atmosphere, so you do no harm through climate change. It's not that you're doing harm which you somehow or other compensate for by offsetting. You just don't do the harm in the first place. This is not a means of compensation. It's a means of avoiding the harm which you ought to do. How do you do this in practice? How do you, how do you take molecules out of the atmosphere in practice? Well, there is a do-it-yourself way of doing it, which is to plant a forest. Because if you plant trees, they grow. Trees take uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. They hang on to the carbon to build their bodies, and they release the, the oxygen. So they're, they're, the carbon is taken out and put in their bodies. Um, 
But if you're going to use that means of offsetting, you're going to have to make sure that your trees, that, that the carbon that's absorbed by your trees doesn't later get back into the atmosphere because then you will have lost all the benefit of doing it. And you need to be pretty careful about that because in the end your trees are going to die and then they'll fall over and de decay or they might get burnt or something else might happen to them. So not only have you got to plant this forest, but you've got to make sure that this forest is preserved and um, and, and replanted for perpetuity, and that's a pretty hard thing to do. So I don't really recommend that as a good way of doing offsetting. Much more easily practical is to do what I call preventive uh, offsetting, which means instead of taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, what you do is you prevent it getting into the atmosphere in the first place. And there are plenty of commercial organizations that offer to do that on your behalf. You pay them a fee fee per tonne of offsetting, and they use your money to finance projects that diminish emissions of carbon dioxide somewhere in the world. Mostly they will be in a developing country. Mostly what they will be doing is uh, creating sources of renewable energy. So these companies will be building hydroelectric power stations or wind farms or something of that sort. Um, others, other projects will promote the efficient use of energy. There's one that I, I particularly like, which installs efficient cooking stoves in houses in Africa and Asia. Um, it turns out that cooking with firewood is an important source of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and an efficient stove goes a very long way to reducing carbon emitted uh, by that source. So there are companies that will do that sort of thing for you. And they will do it extraordinarily cheaply. A reputable company will offset a ton of emissions for, for, you, for your emissions for less than 10 pounds. And so far as I can tell, that's genuine uh, offsetting that it's doing. So you can offset all your emissions for a year with a few hundred pounds during the year. And that's why I said you can actually quite easily avoid harming people uh, through your uh, emissions. Many environmentalists are strongly opposed to what I just said. Greenpeace is strongly opposed, for example. Greenpeace does not like offsetting. Here's one of its arguments. It says, the truth is, once you put a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere, there's nothing offsetting can do to stop it changing our climate. Now, I spent quite a lot of time wondering whether that's true or not. But actually, I don't think that is true. If, at the same time as you put a ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you subtract another ton of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, your actions together do not cause the climate to change. So since the climate does not change, uh, I think that the ton you emit does not change it. That's to say it does not warm the atmosphere. At any rate, I'm quite sure that you do not change your climate, and that's what matters morally. You emit a ton, you take a ton out, you don't change the climate. This doesn't mean that I don't recognize there are significant moral and practical problems committed, connected with offsetting. There certainly are. One of them is that it's really very difficult to be sure that the offsetting you, really, you pay for really takes place. And that's, that, I, I can see that is a very serious problem. Um, but now um, I want to get onto another subject, so I'm ducking out of the difficulty of talking about that because I want to get onto public morality since that was advertised in the title. So I've said what I'm going to say about private morality. I hope there'll be some time for questions so you can ask about that later. 
So public morality now. Um, governments, um, like individuals, they have duties of justice, but I've talked about duties of justice, and now I want to um, survey a different area of the morality of climate change. So now I'm going to talk about the duty of goodness. Uh, so I'm going to concentrate on government's duties uh, of, of goodness. And I've been talking now, up to now, about something that I particularly said will not solve the problem of climate change. The duty of justice that I've been talking about will not solve the problem of climate change. But now I'm going to turn to something that just conceivably might. At any rate, I've come to the view that the point that I'm going to make is really quite important in the politics of climate change, and it's something that deserves more recognition than, than we've had. So I'm going to talk about promoting goodness on the part of governments. When governments try to promote goodness, they have generally to do some rather complex uh, calculations. Governments' actions tend to benefit many people, and they also impose costs on many pe people. And the different benefits have some or other to be put together to form an overall benefit, and they have to be weighed against the costs. So in the most general sense, a cost-benefit analysis is some, some sort is inevitable if governments want to fulfill their duty of goodness um, properly. And that's likely to call for the quantitative methods of economics. It also calls for ethical analysis because all sorts of ethical problems arise when you think about the weighing of benefits and costs that I just mentioned. I'll, I'll give you a, mention a few. So how should benefits to the rich be weighed against benefits to the poor? How should we value the loss of a person's life against the more mundane goods that occur in people's lives? How should we take account of the huge uncertainty that surrounds climate change? How should we weigh distant future benefits against present costs? How should we take into account the changes that climate change will bring to the population of the world, including the extreme possibility, which we hope is very unlikely, that it will actually cause the extinction of humanity? These are all very difficult moral questions and fertile sources of debate, controversy, and I'm not going to talk about any of them. I'm going to talk about one that should be less controversial because it does not involve the weighing of benefits against costs. Oddly enough, this is a point of very simple economics. When a person emits greenhouse gas, that gas spreads around the world. It delivers small harms everywhere. And those harms are among the costs of what the person does. You do something, emissions happen, part of the cost of what you do is the harm that those emissions do. But that harm is not borne by the person who does the emissions. It's borne by all the people around the world who suffer the harm. In the terminology of economists, it's an external cost of the activity. And as economists say, greenhouse gas emissions constitute an externality. And there's a fact that all economists know about externalities, and that is that they cause inefficiency. And that word is being used in a very precise sense. It's what's called the Paratian sense. An inefficient state is defined as a state in which it would be technically possible to make some people better off without making anyone worse off. And because emissions of greenhouse gas are an externality, they do cause inefficiency 
in that sense. That's to say it would be possible, given that there are these greenhouse gases, to make some people better off without making anybody worse off. And indeed, it would be possible to go so far as to eliminate or cancel the problem of externalities by that means, by making some people better off without making anybody worse off. That's a consequence of elementary economic theory. I have to admit that I'd forgotten it, and I had to be reminded of it by my one-time PhD supervisor in economics, uh, Duncan Foley. But it's the truth. No one needs to make any sacrifice in order to remove the externality of greenhouse gas emissions. The greenhouse gas emissions could be limited, eliminated in a way that's good for some people and bad for nobody. I can give you, in very broad terms, an idea of how we, actually this could be achieved. We are bequeathing to our successors a dirty atmosphere. So that's a bad thing that we're leaving for them. But on the other hand, we are leaving plenty of good things for them too. So, for example, we're not using up all the resources there are in the crust of the earth. We're leaving resources for those people. We're actually creating things that will be beneficial to people in the future. We're creating economic infrastructure. We're creating buildings they can live in. We're improving farmland uh, and so on. We're doing investment in, the broad, in broad terms. So these are good things that are being left uh, for people in the future. Now, given that we're doing those good things, here is a way that we could approach the problem of dealing with greenhouse gas. We could reduce our own emissions. Now, other things being equal, that would cost us something. That would involve a sacrifice on our part. But we can compensate ourselves for that sacrifice by not leaving so much of the other good things for the people, not doing so much investment of other sorts, not building such robust buildings that will still be available for them in the future, and so on. So we could, we could compensate ourselves, we reduce our emissions, other things being equal, that would be bad, but we use up more of the resources in the earth, that's good for us, and we can compensate ourselves uh, that way. Um, it, put, to put this in macroeconomic terms, we could keep our own consumption constant and redirect the investment we're doing away from the things I've described, like building infrastructure and so on, towards reducing emissions of uh, greenhouse gas. But in the course of that, we could carry on consuming just as we are, so we would not need to make any sacrifices in, uh, in our consumption. Future generations would be better off because they would receive from us fewer of these other things, but they would receive a cleaner, cleaner atmosphere, and that on balance would be, would be good for them. So there you are. Everybody by this means would end up uh, or some people would be better off and no one would be worse off. Here's a slightly more concrete example of how that could be done. This is far from the sort of example of practice, but it's uh, an indication of the way one might go about this. So we could impose a carbon tax on the emission of carbon in the way that actually is done in places like Australia. You tax carbon, that as economists put it, internalizes the external cost of carbon. So when you emit carbon, you're causing external costs around the world, but if you have to pay a tax that's equal to the cost that you cause, then the, the costs come home to you, are brought home to you, and that's a way of achieving uh, efficiency. We'll um, uh, achieve Pareto efficiency. So we tax people for their emissions, but we then make a lump sum payment to those people to compensate them for having to pay the tax. So for each cubit of carbon, they, emit, they have to pay the tax, but they get back in their 
somehow at the end of the year a chunk of money which fully compensates for them for the loss that they've made in having to pay uh, the taxes. Now, unfortunately, it would be a true miracle if the tax we raised by the carbon tax, the money we raised by the carbon tax, was enough to pay this compensation. It's not. There's a theorem that says it falls short of enough to pay the compensation. So we could be paying people compensation, but some of that compensation would have to come out of loans, which we would, would be pay, repaid by future generations. So what would happen is that governments would go into further debt in order to pay people compensation for paying the carbon tax. That debt would be paid by people in the future, but that's fine because those people in the future are benefiting by the uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So that, that's a way of, slightly more practical way of doing it. So it is possible. But that possibility raises a problem a puzzle, because um, uh, when delegates come each year to meetings of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change at Copenhagen or Durban or wherever it is, they get asked to decide among how to distribute among the nations the burden of reducing climate change. They're told, look, you've got to reduce climate change by so much your emissions, the emissions altogether have to be reduced by this much. That burden has to be spread among the nations. How are we going to do it? And, of course, no nation will agree to making a sacrifice on behalf of its people. So all the delegates go home again, having agreed nothing worthwhile. Um, and yet here am I saying there doesn't have to be a sacrifice in the first place. So why are they being, they being told there's got to be a sacrifice? That's the, that's the puzzle. Well, now, if you've got that handout and you understand economics to any extent, this is the time to look at the handout. If you don't, you probably won't make any sense of it. I'm not going to be talking about it specifically, but if you're an economist, it will be a guide to, to help um, to amplify what I'm about to say. So what is, what is going on? What am I, what's happening when I say there doesn't have to be any sacrifice? Well, as a matter of fact, I am telling the truth. It would indeed be possible to eliminate the externality without any sacrifices. And doing so would be an improvement on the present situation because some people would be better off and nobody would be worse off. However, it doesn't follow from that that this is the best thing to do about climate change. It would be an improvement, but it doesn't follow from the fact that that's an improvement that it's the best thing uh, to do. There may be something else which is the best thing. And most of the economists who work on climate change have chosen to look for the best thing they're not, they're not just trying to improve things for some people without damaging anybody else. They're trying to find the best solution to the problem of climate change. They're doing optimization, as they put it. They want to know what's the best way of managing our resources. How can the international community best meet its duty of goodness? That involves weighing benefits against costs in the way that I've described. And it turns out, if their calculations are right, that the best thing to do is not the thing that I've said is possible. The best thing to do would be for the present generation actually to make some sacrifices for the future. And those points are on the diagram. Uh, Nick Stern in the Stern Review made that claim, and even William Nordhaus, who is more conservative than Stern about these, makes the same uh, claim. They agree that um, uh, the present generation 
to arrive at the best solution should make some sacrifices. And I take it that the UNFCCC is listening to those economists very reasonably. I mean, they're good economists. So now I want to say some more about that. So, so I want you to think about three alternatives, which are there on the diagram. There's first of all business as usual, which is, by that we mean not doing anything much about climate change. Secondly, there's what I call the compensation plan, which is the scheme I've just described, which is good for some people and bad for nobody. And then there's the optimum plan, which is there on the diagram, but it de depends whether you believe Stern or Nordhaus, where you think it is. But in, in some, there is certainly some optimum, uh, though they disagree about what it is. Now, what we're told by the um, cost-benefit analysts is that the optimal plan is better than the compensation plan, and the compensation plan we know is better than business as usual. So that's the position. The compensation plan is unattractive. Not only is it worse than the optimum plan, as we've been told, but it also incorporates a large amount of injustice because business as usual is an unjust situation. What goes on in business as usual is that the rich unjustly harm the poor by emitting greenhouse gas. If we move from there to the compensation plan, what's happening is that the rich, us, are being paid to reduce our emissions by those who suffer from them. That is an improvement for both of us. If the, pay, if the rich are suffering so much that they're willing to pay us to reduce our emissions, they evidently are better off by making the payment and suffering less uh, from the emissions, and we're better off because we're being paid to do, reduce our emissions and we accept that payment. So it is better for both of us, but it clearly perpetuates the injustice. If somebody hurts you every day, you may be able to improve your situation by paying her to stop it. But that doesn't mean that what happens is not an injustice. All that's happening is that the injustice has become embodied in the final situation. So the compensation plan is unjust. And they therefore understand very well why the political process aims at the optimum plan rather than the compensation plan. But the constant lack of progress has made me cynical. National leaders are not going to commit their presently living people to making sacrifices. Maybe the people might be willing to do it, but the national leaders are not going to commit them uh, to do it. So I no longer think that the optimum plan can be achieved by negotiation at UNFCCC meetings. And I now favor aiming at the compensation plan. That's not exactly what I, what I favor, but in the first instance, aiming at the compensation plan. If we did that, then the issue at stake at UNFCCC meetings would not be how to distribute burdens around the nations, but how to distribute the benefits of doing something about climate change around the nations. Stopping climate change is beneficial, and the only question would be, who, who gets the benefits? And putting the question in that optimistic form, I hope, might break the logjam. The difference between the compensation plan and the optimal plans is a matter of distribution of resources between people, between the rich and the poor, and between present and future generations. And that distribution is not primarily determined by climate change. And dealing with climate change does not necessarily involve putting that distribution right. 
If you aim for the best distribution, as Stern and Nordhaus do, do, what you're implicitly doing is trying to correct all the ills of the world because you're trying to put the distribution of wealth or resources between the present generation and the future, you're trying to make that the best distribution that it could be. So you're taking on, you're, you're, you're trying to make the world the best place it could possibly be. So suppose, for instance, as Stern does, you think that the correct rate for discounting future benefits is below the market rate. Then what you think by implication, and Stern does, is that we, the present generation, are not leaving enough for the future. We are not anyway giving enough resources to future people. We should be passing more down the generations, is the implication of that rule, that view. And if when you choose your policies about climate change on the basis of this lower discount rate, you will find yourself wanting to make up for this general failure that we are making, namely not passing enough resources to the future generation, you'll find yourself wanting to make up for that as well as correcting the problem of climate change. And now I've become cynical, I think we should concentrate on solving the particular problem first and temporarily leave aside the general problem of the distribution of resources in the world. If the compensation plan can be achieved, the optimal plan remains a possibility. We can move to the compensation plan and then do something about going towards the the optimal plan. And I hope that if we break the logjam in the negotiations by my uh, suggestion, by making the compensation plan a real possibility, I hope we might end up achieving something more like the optimal plan in the end. Getting from the the compensation plan to the optimal plan is a matter of redistribution, which could be achieved by um, cancelling the debt that I described that would be required to operate the, um, uh, the compensation plan. The compensation plan would involve compensation out of debt. Well, having done that, we could simply cancel the debt so the future generations don't have to repay it, and that would be a matter of distribution towards uh, them. So in taking up this cynical position, I haven't abandoned hope entirely of getting to something better, but I think that this is a way of moving it. My proposal sets a task for the economics profession. Uh, The theory says that the compensation plan where no one makes a sacrifice is possible, but to make it work in practice involves some preparation. The idea, as I said, was that we're to reduce our emissions, and we're going to have to do that, finance the cost of doing that by debt. And that debt has got to be repaid by future people. Now, everybody knows that it's not so easy for governments to carry debt these days. Uh, we're supposed to have more debt than is actually feasible. So if now we're trying to carry more debt by doing this, by dealing with compensation, by dealing with climate change, by means of debt payments, that's not going to be possible with the present economic institutions of the world. The present economic institutions will prevent us from achieving this compensation plan by making it impossible to build up um, the amount of debt that would be uh, needed. So we need robust new economic institutions. We need a bank of climate change or something like that set up in the way that economists did set up the World Bank and the IMF to deal with financial difficulties in the world. 
Um, we need a th new robust institution that will make it possible to carry all this extra debt. And economists must design those institutions. If they make this really truly possible, then they may break the logjam, they may be able to restart progress on climate change, and I hope the result of that may be that we work more, move nearer towards the best result. Thank you.